Well, good morning, Freedom. My name's Eric. I'm the pastor here, and we are grateful that you're worshiping with us live in person and those of you that are joining us online. Uh, if you're new to Freedom, one of the things we typically do is we walk through books of the Bible, and today we are in uh, our series through the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Galatians 3. We're going to cover the last part of Galatians 3 and into Galatians 4. And today's passage is a is a, an incredible story and picture of who we are in Christ. It's an amazing metaphor that Paul uses to describe our life as Christians, that we are adopted into God's family. Now, I had a very different introduction for this passage uh, planned out, but as the more I, I thought about it and the more I thought about it, it just reminded me of this passage and, and all that it means. And this is a, a difficult passage to teach personally. As many of you know, Nicole and I have a daughter that we adopted from Taiwan. And this passage on adoption brings about so many incredible and powerful memories. It reminds us of the joy of the day that we met our daughter. It reminds me of the memories of of living in our insane home uh, when she was a child with four different languages going on. She spoke Mandarin. We spoke English. We started speaking Chinglish. And then she and Will at three and four had their own language, Willanese. And this passage reminds me of all that stuff. But it's also uh, a reminder and, and really the... Uh, brings about the pain of a daughter who's lost her identity, who's walked away from the family. And I'm not comparing us to God by any stretch of the, of the imagination, but it is a reminder of how God must feel when his own children, when those of us who call ourselves Christ's followers, walk away from him, when we lose our identity in Christ. And so today I want us to go into this passage not with heavy hearts, but with the joy of who we are in Christ. Because this passage is really the about halfway through the book of Galatians, and we really get to the climax of the gospel. We get to the heart of the gospel in this passage. And Paul is going to show us and reveal to us who we are as Christians. And he's going to show us why being a Christ follower is such a huge privilege. So if you have your Bibles, let's pick up in, in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, because this passage is so important. And it's important because adoption, our spiritual adoption, is the heart of the gospel. It is the heart of the gospel. You and I are adopted into God's family. And until we understand what that actually means, we're going to have a very hard time understanding what it means to follow Christ and who we are in Christ. And we're going to have a difficult time understanding how to actually live out this life of faith that God has called us to. So in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, here's what Paul says. 
For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Flip over to verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And in the same way, we also... When we were children, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Look at verse 4. But, but sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, before we, before we dive into Paul's teaching on adoption, I think it's important for us to recap what we've talked about so far. In Galatians 1, uh, we saw Paul talk about how our acceptance before God is not based on our performance. Our acceptance before God is based entirely upon the work of Christ, what Jesus has done for us. It's not based on anything that we can do. That would be legalism, and that would not be the gospel. And then in chapter 2, Paul addresses the idea of, of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is when you and I uh, live differently than the gospel that we proclaim. That when we live in such a way that it denies the gospel. And Paul says, if you and I truly trust and truly follow Jesus Christ, then our lives are going to be transformed. We're going to be different. We're going to look like and model what, who Jesus is. Our lives are going to be transformed by his teaching and what he said. Then in chapter 3, Paul walks through nearly 2,000 years of Old Testament history. He begins with a promise that was made to Abraham. Then he goes through the law that was given to Moses in order to get us to Jesus Christ. And what Paul says in chapter 3 is that the promises were made to Abraham and the law was given to Moses. Why? To point us and to show us Jesus. And we can sum up everything that Paul has said in Galatians 1 through 3 with this statement that we've repeated over and over and over again. That you and I are saved, that we are justified, that we are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We can sum up the entire thing that Paul has been teaching us with those simple words. And here's why you and I are justified and, and are given salvation in Christ alone. And it is because Jesus fulfills the law of Moses for us. He fulfilled every bit of the law. He did not break one single law. And he fulfills the law for us. And therefore, Jesus completes the promise of Abraham to us. 
And that is why that you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And really the main doctrine that Paul talks about in Galatians 1 through 3 is the doctrine of justification by faith. And here's what justification by faith means. It means God's gracious act by where he declares sinners, you and I, righteous before God solely through our faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of our works, but because of Christ's work, what Jesus has done on the cross. But here's what I want you to know. This is so amazing. Justification is not the only doctrine of the gospel. Justification is not where the gospel ends. In fact, there may be a doctrine that is greater than justification. Never read it. It's a fantastic, incredible book. And in this book, Packer says this, that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. That adoption us being adopted into God's family is the greatest privilege and the highest privilege of the gospel. And he, he goes on to say this, that justification, that justification by faith is the primary blessing of the gospel. Why? Because that is what we need the most. You and I need to be made right before God. And in order to be made right before God, we must be justified by faith. But then Packer goes on to say that adoption is the higher or greater blessing of the gospel. And here's what he means by this. The reason Packer says that this is the greatest or highest blessing of the gospel is because it brings us into a deeper, more intimate relationship with God the Father. He's saying both doctrines are necessary. We must be justified by faith, which is our primary thing that we need. It's our greatest spiritual need. But the fact that the gospel doesn't stop there, but actually God invites us and adopts us into his family is a higher blessing because of the intimate relationship that it brings with God. He goes on to explain why adoption is a higher blessing than justification. And he says this, justification makes us right before God the judge. But adoption shows us that we are loved and cared for by God the Father. Justification is where God the judge declares that you and I are not guilty. But get this, adoption is where God the Father steps down from his bench comes to where we are, takes off the shackles and chains of sin that binds us and says, come home with me, my son. That's the beauty of adoption into God's family. That's the beauty of this doctrine that we're going to be talking about in, in, the, in our divine spiritual adoption. J.I. Packer concludes his argument by saying this, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. And that's where we could all say amen, right? But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. Now let's talk about 
this adoption as sons, this doctrine of spiritual adoption. Look at verse 26 in chapter 3. And this verse is really the heart of the gospel. It is the heart of the Christian life. And Galatians 3, 26 says this, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, each and every one of us are sons of God through faith. Notice that he says that we are already sons of God. This isn't some future tense, something we're trying to attain, something we're striving for, something we're aiming at. No, this is a present. You and I, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ right now, currently, you are a son of God. You are a son of God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Why is Paul using this masculine term, son, in order to describe and refer to men and women? I know, some, I mean, I was thinking the same thing. Why would Paul use this term, sons, when he's referring to you and I, both men, me, and women, some, half of you in the room? Like, why is he referring to you as sons? And here's, here's the reality, and here's, here's, here's what I want you to know. And, and many of us may prefer to translate this verse, and maybe some of you translate this verse, children, you are all children of God. And in a sense, that is true, isn't it? As human beings, we are children of God. We are, the, 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 we are made in His image, and therefore we are His children in that sense. But, but don't, don't look at what Paul is saying as being chauvinistic. That is not what he's saying at all. That is not what he's doing. In fact, Paul is saying by calling us and using this Greek word for sons is revolutionary. And in fact, there are other places throughout the the New Testament where Paul writes and he says things that we are children of God. But in this instance, when he's talking about adoption, he is using specifically this Greek word for sons. Why? Why is this revolutionary? Why is it so important? Because here's the reality. If we are too quick to change the biblical language, then we will miss out on the impact of what Paul is saying. And here's what he is saying. Paul is speaking of sonship. Paul is speaking of being a God. And we are only his sons through our faith in the Son. And Paul is showing that through faith, it is through faith that God adopts us. But why does he use the word sons? And here's why. In ancient times, in Paul's day, daughters did not receive an inheritance. Daughters didn't receive an inheritance. Therefore, when Paul says sons, he is saying that we are legal heirs to God's kingdom. That we are sons because daughters were forbidden to receive an inheritance. And so the gospel tells us that every single one of us, all of us are sons of God in Christ. In other words, we are all, both man and men and women, male and female, every single one of us received the full inheritance of the gospel. We receive the full inheritance to every single one of us that it, that it, that it is granted to us as, children, as sons of God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul is talking about inheritance here. And in verses 3, 27 through 4, 7, Paul describes what God does through our spiritual adoption. And he's going to do so by showing us the son's work, Jesus' work in our adoption, 
but he's also going to show us the Spirit's work in our adoption. So that's what I want to talk about for the, for the remaining time. First thing I want you to see is God sent his son, God sent Jesus, so that we might receive the position of sons. He sent Jesus so that we might receive the position of sons and therefore receive the full inheritance as sons. Look at verse uh, chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Here's what he says. Well, let me just explain verses 1 through 3. We're not going to read them again, but verses 1 through 3, Paul is describing what would happen in that day. So if, if a son were born and he were young the, and he was a child, what the father would do would, would set up an appointed time in the future when that son would receive the inheritance. And up until, up until he reached that age, let's just call it 18, 19, 20, whatever that age would be, until that son reached that age, he was, no, he was just a child. And children were basically considered and treated as slaves back in those days. They, were, they had no standing, no rights, no privileges, nothing. And so Paul is saying that just as that would happen, there was an appointed time. And at that appointed time, that son would then become the legal heir to his father's estate. And up until that point, he had no rights. And then Paul uses that in verse 3 to explain our lives before Christ, how you and I are slaves to sin before Christ. He talks about it being enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. In other words, we are enslaved to sin. And then he gets to verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, so see where he's tying that into verses 1 through 3? When the fullness of time had come, what did God do? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul is saying that God in his sovereignty, God in his providence has been directing all of human history to this moment. All the promises that were made to Abraham, all the law that was given to Moses, all the prophecies that were given to the prophets were all pointing to this moment, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Christ. The promises point to Christ. The law drives us to Christ. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that the purpose of the law was to realize that we cannot keep it, therefore we need a Savior. And then the prophecies were given so that we would recognize Christ when he comes. And all of that, Paul says, in the fullness of time, God has been working and moving and doing all of those things so that he could send his son at just the right time. And that's exactly what he did. But to understand what Paul is getting at and, and what Paul is talking about with our, adopt, with our adoption, we need to go back and we need to think about and understand the world in Paul's day. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, in Paul's world, a wealthy, a wealthy man who had no children could actually go and adopt a servant. And that servant would become his son. And so Paul, at that moment of, uh, in Paul's day, at the moment of that slave's adoption, he ceased being a slave. And in that moment, he received the full financial and legal privileges of a son and an heir of the estate. That's the way adoption worked in Paul's day. So though that ch child was born a slave with no privileges, no rights, nothing, the moment that child was adopted 
by the wealthy business owner or landowner, in that moment, that child received the full rights and the full privileges and the legal status of a son. Think about that. In just a moment, just like that, this person was once a slave, is given a brand new life. A brand new life with full of rights and full of privileges of a son. And this metaphor of what, this is an incredible, beautiful metaphor of what Jesus has done and given to us. Not only has Jesus redeemed us, not only has he freed us from our sin, Jesus came to adopt us and make it possible for you and I to receive the position of sons of God. To be adopted into God's family. And that's only possible because of the work of Jesus Christ. But here's what's what's even more amazing. Is not only do we receive this position of sons and our status has changed for now and for all eternity, but not only that, Jesus, when we are adopted into his family, begins to transform us, begins to change us, begins to shape us to look more and more like the family, like the kingdom. Let's go back to chapter 3 and let's see how Jesus transforms us. In chapter 3, verse 27, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. Let's stop right there. As many of you were baptized. What is Paul talking about? He's saying that when you and I are adopted into God's Son, we now live with a new identity in Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, that you are new, you have been given new life, that old things have passed away and all things have become new. That's our new identity in Christ. Paul says we are baptized into Christ, which is a picture of our, our lives being immersed into Christ. That's why we believe in water baptism, because water baptism pictures our lives being immersed in Christ. Water baptism pictures, yes, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But it also pictures the immersion of our lives into Christ, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. We are to walk now in that new identity of who we are in Jesus Christ, because we've been given a new identity. Now, baptism, in a a real sense, has replaced circumcision as the identifying marker of God's people. That was the whole crux of this letter, wasn't it? that the Judaizers wanted the Gentiles in Galatia to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul is saying, listen, baptism into Christ is now the new identifier. It is the new marker. It doesn't save us. Being baptized is not what saves us. But baptism is an outward picture of an inward reality. It is an outward picture of the transformation that Christ has done through our new identity in him. And although baptism is not necessary for for salvation, it's also not optional for our obedience either. It is a step of obedience that all of us must take as followers of Christ. But not only that, Paul says that we are clothed, so we we identify with Christ, we're baptized in him. But not only that, we are clothed with Christ. Look what he says at at the end of verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We have put on Christ. We have been clothed with Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the Christian life. 
You see it in Colossians. You see it here in Galatians. That we put on Christ. That we are clothed with Christ. And the idea and thought of us being clothed with Christ has four incredible implications. If you're taking notes, you want to write these things down. Because this, is, this really helps us understand who we are in Christ. The first thing that it implies is that our primary identity is in Christ. Our primary identity is in Christ. This past week, I was in Nashville. And uh, I was at a conference up there on discipleship. And, and I was at this conference. And, and, you know, in Nashville, it's the country music mecca of the world. And so you walk around downtown Nashville and you can identify people. You can say, well, that dude is definitely a tourist because he's got on the big butt, butt, the shiny hat and all this other stuff. The, the regular Nashvilleans, the true country music folks, have on their worn out Wranglers, not the brand new pair that they bought down the street. Uh, you know, and, and you can just identify people. And so then you can see, you know, the, the people that, that are, are identifying as country music people. And then you can see the people that are identifying as other groups. For those of you who watched college football yesterday. And you wore red and black. You, what are you doing? You're identifying with God's team. Um, and for those of you who wore blue and orange, we're not going to tell you who you're identifying with. But what we wear identifies us, doesn't it? I say that jokingly, but what we wear identifies us. Like, the clo- like if you work in a place where you have to wear a uniform, that uniform identifies who you are. And so our being clothed with Christ identifies who we are in Christ. But not only that, it implies a closeness of our relationship to Christ. What do I mean by that? Clothes, possession, that you keep closer to yourself than any other possession. Even if you have a wallet right now, guess what? That wallet... Is, is, has, has your clothes in between that and your body. Our clothes are the closest things that we have. That our clothes are show and reveal the closeness that we have in Christ. So when we say that we are clothed with Christ, we have put on Christ, what that is reminding us and showing us in the metaphor for the fact that moment by moment, you and I have dependence upon Christ. And moment by moment, we are to have an awareness of Christ. That's the closeness that we have in Christ. But not only that, it implies the imitation of Christ. That we are to imitate Jesus. Why? Because our clothes go everywhere with us. Praise God. Everywhere we go, we're wearing our clothes. And if you don't, then you're in trouble. But everywhere we go, you're wearing your clothes. What is that showing us? It's reminding us that Christ goes into every single area of our lives. It's not like we can say, you know what, I'm going to wear my clothes. I'm going to be clothed with Christ on Sunday, and then I'm going to take him off the rest of the week. No, we are clothed with Christ, so therefore we go with him. He goes with us everywhere. His spirit dwells within us. We are clothed with Christ. We take him into every single area of our lives. There's not an area of our lives that we can keep hidden from Christ. We are clothed with him, and we are to imitate him. We are to put on his virtues. We are to put on his character. In just a few weeks when we get to chapter 5, he's going to talk about his spirit that is to be lived out of us, the, the, the fruit of the spirit. And why? Because we are clothed with him. We live out these virtues, these actions. We are becoming more and more and more like him. 
fourth implication is this, is our acceptability before God. Think about this. Our clothing covers our nakedness. Just as Christ's work on the cross covers our sin and our shame. Christ's work on the cross takes our unrighteousness and God gives us his righteousness. So that when God looks at you and when God looks at me, he sees us as his sons. Why? Because when he looks at us, he sees his sons. He sees his son, Jesus. He sees Jesus, Jesus' righteousness covering us. And that's what it means to be clothed with Christ. But there's another. Let's look at verse 38. The third thing we see um, when it comes to our adoption, the position of our adoption, the transformation. Verse 28. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? He says, in addition to all that, in addition to being having a new identity in Christ, in addition to being clothed with Christ, we now... We now are united in Christ. And so what Paul does is he walks through in this passage, and you'll see a very similar passage in Colossians uh, as well as here in Galatians. But what he's doing is he's walking through the things in his culture that divided people. He's walking through the things in his culture that separated people. Not very different than the things that separate us today, is it? There's a lot of things in our world that divide us. And Paul is just using a sampling of those. He starts with Jew and Greek. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek. In the kingdom of God, in the church, there, are, there is no place for racial barriers. And yet the church is the most segregated hour of each and every one of our weeks. Paul says there is neither slave, I mean there is neither Jew nor Greek. Racial divisions have no place in his church. But not only that, there's also implied in Jew and Greek is a national division. There is no nationality division within the church of Jesus Christ. God doesn't love one country over another country, one nationality over another country, one race over another race. So Paul says there's no place for that. But then he moves to social barriers. There's neither slave nor free. What are those? Those are social barriers. Those are socioeconomic barriers. And Paul is saying, listen, there is no place for, for those, those social barriers within the church. Those that are wealthy should not look down on those that are poor. And those that are poor should not resent those that are wealthy. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is just saying, listen, this, there's no place for class distinction. It's prohibited in my kingdom. And then finally, Paul talks about gender barriers. There's neither male nor female. In other words, he's saying that men and women are one. We are one in Christ. Now, this verse does not mean what some of these TikTok theologians say that it means. This is not about gender identity that is plaguing our nation and our world right now. 
it clearly shows that God made two genders, male and female. You can't switch between the two. You can't choose one one day and choose another another day. No, he's saying that we are male and female. But what he does say is that men are no better than women and women are no better than men, that we are one in Christ. And I've seen this verse used so many times in so wrong ways. We just need to understand Paul is saying this was a major division within the church, within the within his culture of that day. And in our culture, it cannot be a division. We are one male and female. We are one equally in Christ. Different roles, different functions, but equal in Christ. So Paul is basically saying, listen, when it comes to the church, when it comes to being Christ followers, there should be no divisions. Why? Because we are united in Christ. Now, he's not saying that we lose those distinctions when we come to Christ. We're still male. We're still female. Some of us have wealth. Some of us don't. Some of us are born in one country and one race. Some of us are born in another race. We don't lose those distinctions, but what he says is those distinctions can never divide us. Why? Because our union with Christ creates communion with each other. Our union with Christ creates communion with one another. And here's the reality, church. As great as everything we've talked about, our unity with Christ, our identity with Christ, our being clothed with Christ. As great as all those things are, the gospel could stop right here and we would, we would all fall down on our great news. And this is the second thing. I want us to see. We've seen how the sun works to create our position as sons through adoption. But now I want us to see how the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, works in order so that you and I might experience the privilege of sonship, the privilege of adoption. See, Jesus, when his work secured our legal status as sons of God. But what the Spirit does, he actually secures the actual experience of sonship. It is through God's Holy Spirit that we experience the privileges of being God's sons. The Son transforms our identity in Christ, where the Spirit transforms our intimacy with God the Father. Let's look at verse 4 of chapter 6. You are sons. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. That, church, is the privilege of of sonship. That is the privilege of our adoption. That we now have this close, intimate relationship with God the Father, so close that we can go to our, God, our, our Heavenly Father and we can call Him Abba. What does that mean? Abba was a word, a term of personal, intimate affection. Abba means daddy, papa. It is a picture of intimacy. It is a picture of closeness that each and every one of us can experience because we are adopted as God's sons. Think about this. As a child, and even think about your own children, 
Your children didn't go and write speeches to come before you, did they? They just came before you and said whatever was on their heart, right? Whatever was on their mind, they just blurted it out. And as children of God, we don't have to create speeches to come before God. Our prayer should be spontaneous. Our prayer should be warm and personal and intimate. It shouldn't be this, you know, this mechanized thing where we're making sure we get all the words right and, you know, make sure that we say, you know, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be that. You know, we're not, we're not coming to him in this formality. We're coming to him as children. We're coming to him as his sons who can come in warmth and closeness and come to him as Abba and personal intimate affection that's what Paul, uh, that's what Paul is showing us it's, it's, he's implying that God is that close to us we, are, we can truly experience him in that way I think part of the reason we don't experience him in that way is because we've formalized our Christian life way too much Instead of making a relationship with God normal, we've made a relationship with God formal. And we created all of these things around it where you have to speak a certain way and say things a certain way and, and, and make sure that you're postured in a certain way in order to, to talk to God. But I want you to begin to rethink and realize that when you come before God, you are coming before Abba. And just like my kids never have to wait for a certain time or a certain moment to come to me. They can call me any moment, any day, any time, with any question, any problem, any concern, and what am I willing to do? Drop everything in order to talk to them. That's the picture that Paul is showing us with our Heavenly Father. Think about that. The Almighty God, the Creator of the universe, the one that through the stars in the sky that created everything that we have just with his spoken word is willing and ready to have an intimate, close, personal conversation with you and with me. At the drop of a hat, anytime we want to have it, God is willing and ready to hear and, and, and he's, it just shows the reality of the nearness of God. That's how close our Heavenly Father is to us. So what does this mean for all of us? It means that you and I have been adopted as sons of God. We're not slaves assigned to a life of devotional drudgery. We're not slaves assigned to a life of menial religious task. No, we are sons of God. We have been called into an intimate, personal relationship with God Almighty. And just like all of our close relationships, our relationship with God takes time to deepen. It takes time to grow. It requires us spending time with Him. If you're married, think about your marriage. And if you, were, if you want to be close with your spouse, what do you have to do? Spend time with them. Hang out with them. Have conversation with them. And the same is true in our relationship with God. If we want to deepen our relationship with God, if we want to grow in our intimacy with God, we have to spend time with Him. So I want to talk about just a few things that have helped me personally spend time with God. 
and you can just listen to them. You can evaluate them in your own life. But these are, these are some of the things that, that I try to practice on a regular basis in order to spend time, in order to deepen my relationship with God. The first is simplicity. The more cluttered my life gets, the more difficult it is for me to remain close to God. So I, have to, I try, and, and it's difficult to live a simple uh, to, to simplistic life, especially with all the technology. I mean, I preach off an iPad, so I mean, I'm not like, you know, immune to technology. I don't like that type of simple where we're growing our own vegetables and all that kind of junk. I'm just talking about trying to, I mean, for those of you who do, that's fine. Um, just don't grow tomatoes. They're the devil's fruit. Um, but uh, I'm just teasing. They're really not. Actually, they are. We'll talk about that one someday. But what I'm talking about is, is when I come to God, I want to try to unclutter my life and my mind as I approach the Father. I want to try to remove everything that distracts me. And I don't know about you, but every time I sit down to spend time in God's Word, there's like a million things pop in your mind. Anybody? Okay, yeah. It's, it's inevitable. The moment you sit down, I mean, you can have your mind clear and free. And you're like, okay, I'm ready to spend time with the Father. The moment you do, about for the last 50 years, pops in your mind. So I just, I, I keep a little note thing on, on, next to me when I do it. And I just jot it down and set it aside. Next, next crazy thought that pops in my mind, just jot it down and set it aside. That's the way I try to keep it sim- that, that, that simplistic um, uh, you know, thing when I'm having, spending time with God. Another thing I try to do is just silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. I try to slow down the pace of my life as much as I can in order to make space to spend time with God. But here's the reality. Most of us don't like silence. And most of us don't like solitude. Because we live in a culture that is intended to distract us and keep us from spending time with God. Because spending time with God requires us to be still. How many of you like that? Be still and know that I am God. The only way we can be, be still is to practice silence and solitude. Another thing is surrender. Just by release, I don't know about you, but I like to grip things. I like to be in control of a lot of things. I'm a type A personality. I want to be in control of everything. I want to make sure that everything's moving and working exactly the way I planned it and exactly the way I want it to go. And so I've had to learn to let go. I've had to learn to hold things open palm. And that is difficult. And I promise you, you can ask my wife, I don't do this perfectly. I'm just telling you things that have helped me. I'm not saying things that I've I've, I've, pract- I've, I've won continually. I'm continually trying to grab hold of it. And, and God just remind, continually reminds me, release the grip that you have on things that keep your attention from God. Prayer is another. Just getting back to that, what, what Paul talks about in verse 6. Just reminding myself over and over and over again that prayer is just to be a normal conversation with God not this formal uh, speech that I'm supposed to give to God. Does that make sense? I just want it to be real and normal. And sometimes it's very raw. Sometimes it is, it is incredibly raw. And, and, and that's okay. 
God wants you to bring all of your, yes, your praise, your thanksgiving, your, your petitions, but he also wants you to bring your struggles. He also wants you to bring your pain. He wants you to lay it out before him, just like a child would lay it out before their father. Humility, which is a very difficult one for me. It's just bowing my entire life before the will of the Father. Another thing that's just helped me spend time with God. And then self-control, just holding back my priorities in favor of God's priorities. Those are just those are some of, of many things that have helped me. Now, I don't, none of those things make me a son of God. None of those things earn God's favor, all right? None of those things win merit for me before a holy God. But what they do is they draw me closer to him. What they do is they enable me to spend time with him. So I want you to reflect on your own intimacy with God. Just in our closing moments, I want you to reflect on your own relationship with God. How are you doing? How is your time with the Father? How much time do you spend with God each day? How much time do you devote to him? How... How often do you think about him as you go throughout your day? That's what Paul talked about to the Thessalonians that pray continually. It's not that we're bowing our heads and closing our eyes and on our knees continually. It's this constant awareness and dependence upon the Father. That's what praying continually means. So how are you doing with that? Do you talk to him or just mumble a few meaningless words as you go throughout your day? Do you pause and listen to him in your times of silence? In solitude, as you thoughtfully read his word, do you or, or are you so obsessed with your schedule that you just run through your time with God and check it off the list? So you can move on to the next thing. These are things that we need to examine. Paul calls us in believe Corinthians to examine ourselves. And these are just questions to help examine ourselves. Do you live a life of surrender and self-control or do you clutter your life with a heap of distractions? Only you can answer those questions. And, and if your current relationship with God isn't where you want it to be, then first of all, admit it, confess it, and then make plans to change it. Start to, to make changes, to begin to spend time with him. Because here's the reality, church. I want My prayer for each and every one of us is that we would have a hunger and thirst for a deeper, more intimate relationship with God. Every week I pray for our church that we, would, that we would long to spend time with him. That we would have a more meaningful relationship with the Father. That we would walk more closely with him. That we would talk more confidently to him. That we would deliberately wait in silence hanging on his every word. And that we would do it personally and individually. Not just when we gather corporately. And it's only when we begin to experience that kind of intimacy with the Heavenly Father will we truly experience the privilege of being a son of God and truly experience this adoption that God has given each and every one of us through the work of His Son and through the presence of His Spirit. And may each and every one of us live in In that reality of being able to call out to God, Abba, Father. So, Abba, Father, we 
are so grateful for the intimacy that we could have with you. That, that we, we don't have to come to you in formality, but we can come to you personally and intimately. And we can call you Abba. We can call you Daddy. We can call you Papa. And we can know you with that kind of intimacy. With that kind of closeness. And Father, my prayer for each and every one of us is that we would experience that in our lives personally. That we wouldn't just hear it theologically. We wouldn't just hear it as a theory or as an idea, but we would experience it in reality. That we would know And deepen our relationship with you. And so Father today we thank you that you have adopted us as sons. That we can receive the full inheritance of your kingdom. And we can experience a change in, the, in our position as sons. And we can, exchange, we can experience the privileges of being your sons. And now through your Holy Spirit, help us to live in that reality. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.